Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Excited about today's sermon entitled, Your Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. Praise God for His living Word, and He endures it and continues it, and is faithful to let us continue to study and know what He has for us and understanding these important truths. We find ourselves still on the night before uh, the Jesus would go to the cross. He's interacting with the disciples and speaking these truths. And we, we pick up here in verse 16 in your bulletin outline, sermon note outline there, you'll see the first section here I have titled Fleshly Struggles with Depending on and Trusting Jesus. That our flesh struggles to depend on and trust in. And so we work against that. We see that played out here in the disciples. Look with me at verse 16 through 19. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me, you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? So Jesus says once again to the disciples that he's leaving, they won't see him and then he'll come back for them. And this continues to be a struggle for the disciples. They're struggling with how to digest this truth. Because we have to remember how dependent on him they've become. It's not unlike a toddler. If you ever raised a toddler or been around a toddler, when you watch mommy and daddy leave, hey, we're going bye-bye or we're leaving, and, and that toddler loses their mind. What do you mean you're leaving? Like, I'm going too then. Because being here without you, my world doesn't get that. I don't like that. I want to be with my mom and my dad. And, uh, man, it, we got a, a little one, Piper's, you know, two and a half, and that's, that's a steady thing. She loves to go bye-bye because she wants to go with us. And when we're gone and come home, she loves to, Daddy's home. I mean, it's super great. I'll even pick her up, and then she'll look at me, Daddy's home. It's awesome. Love it. it. It's not that the disciples were young like a toddler, but they were dependent on Jesus, in that similar way, their life very centered around shadowing and serving the master. So they couldn't imagine what would it be like for them to do their days now without him. You mean you're going and when are you coming and in their processing this, how are they going to function without him? So Jesus has been and is continuing to embolden them with clarity that he's going to prepare a place for them, that the Holy Spirit will do a new and mighty work in and through them while he's gone, and that they will be hated by the world that surrounds them, a world that stands against him and the gospel, but that he has put his love on them and that they will be his forever. These are things that he's said and he's clarified. And so I just want to stop and ask us this morning, do you feel this kind of dependence on Jesus? 
Because I think we can quickly get all too used to compartmentalizing our walk with Jesus where we get into days where we're, we're not dependent on him. We're not desperate for him. We're, we're all too good at just kind of doing it ourselves and we try to kind of add him into the mix. But for the disciples, they couldn't even imagine what, what it would look like to walk and testify and do their work without him. And I think that should be the same way for us because our dying to self to live to Christ is just that. We're dying to ourselves to live for and live with Christ. Every day, every moment of every day, desperate for him, dependent on him. That our very identity, like the disciples who walked with him, our identity as modern day disciples, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we live for and serve Christ all of our days. Second, I want us to see the disciples struggling with the timing of what is happening and the fact that they still don't fully understand or know what's going to go down. He's been telling them, but they still are having a hard time wrapping their heads all the way around it. And we see their flesh want to know. We want to know. We want to understand. This is a desire of the flesh. It's our desire to want control, want insight. And I think we relate to this. We, we want that insight. We want to know what's going on. We want to know what's going to come. And, and we need to see that that very desire to be in control, to have that insight, is counter to our needed dependence on Jesus. Because the more insight I have, the more understanding I have, the more control I am, the less I need to be dependent on him. Are we joyfully trusting him that he knows best, following him, willing to wait on him? How are you doing lately at trusting in God's plan and his timing for things to unfold? Even when they make no sense to us, even when it's coming at you hard and your plans are getting upset, we must never forget that God's timing is better than ours and his plan is better than ours. We have endless examples of this in Scripture, time and time again, where God makes his instruction clear, says to wait on him, and then people, even the faithful, will completely just dismiss and just in sin do what they think is the best thing to do. I mean, consider one of the great, the great promises ever given to man, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And, and to have a lineage, to have a heritage, to have a son, and they're so excited and, and then they're waiting, and, and when is this going to happen? And so his wife devises a plan to say, let's just get this thing happening. You're not, we're not getting pregnant, so sleep with my servant, and we'll get you pregnant, and we'll get this heritage thing started, and all this blessing from God. And they didn't wait on God. In sin, they pursued another path. Or later, when King Saul's risen up, and and instructed by God to go take the certain people and, and to completely put them under the ban, which was this instruction to say that you're, you're to annihilate all of the people, all of their resources, all of their stuff. Nothing is to be removed, taken, or left. They're to be wiped out. And Saul gets there and he conquers his people, and then, but he loves their resources and he loves some of the slaves, and, and so he takes some of their spoils back for himself, for his kingdom, thinking that oh, this will be good for our kingdom, but not obeying God. And that was the demise of Saul. 
And the list is endless. We're, we're, they didn't wait. They didn't trust in him. They didn't do what he said. They, they had a better logic. This, this doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to do that. Beloved, we must be faithful. We must trust him. We must wait on him. And embrace even his discipline and his shaping of us. These are markers that I'm submissive and a follower of Jesus. Not that I'm trying to make God submissive to me and my will and my plan. These are emphasis points we read in, in Proverbs 3. If you want to turn there with me, Proverbs 3. I want to read verse 1 through 12. Um, a great and quick way to get to Proverbs is just split your Bible in two and you're likely going to land in Psalms and then just go to the next book and you're in Proverbs. I don't know about you, I hope you're reading with us in our daily reading plan. Um, what a joy. This year we've been studying spiritual disciplines in our daily reading time and the Proverbs. And if you don't know what that is, then uh, the yellow page in the back table you can put in your Bible is the reading plan. And you can just jump right in wherever we're at right now, Proverbs 13, and, and continue through the rest of the year with us. Or you can go online, go to our reading plan link, and put your email in, and verify that email. And it will send you a daily reading on your phone, on your tablet, whatever your device is. You just read daily with us the scriptures, and then on Saturday we send you a devotion to do at home. Sunday, you're here with us, we're in the Word corporately. Uh, but it's been a joy to be reading the Proverbs. Solomon brings great insight here in, in, in Proverbs 3. Consider how we struggle with these things, but also how good this counsel is for us. 3 verse 1, Proverbs 3 verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Trust, oh, I'm sorry, so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The disciples are struggling with the idea revealed by Jesus that Jesus is leaving and they're worrying about his return and the timing of all this. What do you mean by this? What does this mean for us? And I get it. Our flesh does not like to wait. 
Our flesh does not like to not know, but we need to trust in him and wait on him. Jesus said in Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Church, this is one of the most central ways that we practically acknowledge that God is God and we are not. We walk by faith. We trust him. I don't have an explanation. I don't understand or know, but I believe, I trust that he's good. I will stay submissive. I will follow the instruction of his word. He's the one in charge of all things, not me. He's the one working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. It's not up to us. It's not ours to know when or how. It's simply trust that he will do what he intends to do and, and that he's God. That he will see it through. That his promises are rock solid. His ways are higher than our ways. We read that in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So it is for our good that God doesn't govern the world's affairs or our lives by our timing or by our will. This is a critical moment for the disciples to have faith, trust Jesus, what they couldn't understand. And so let's see what Jesus does now with them next, how he's going to continue to bless them. And he brings them some real hard truth next. Look at verse 20, John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. First, see Jesus not coddle them, but prepare them for what's coming. He's not going to lie and say, hey, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry. No, it's going to get real bad before it gets worse, before it gets better. Now, this is first and foremost speaking of the disciples' grief that they will surely experience to watch their master not only be falsely arrested and lied about and convicted publicly, exchanged for a known murderer, but tortured, watch his flesh taken from his body, to watch him hung naked in front of a, a sea of people who are enjoying his demise, celebrating him, mocking him. He's saying, you will grieve. You will lament. You will be filled with sorrow. The world will persecute you and hate you and even attempt to kill you. He just got finished telling them. But now he says, you're going to weep and you're going to lament. Church, see the reality of the opposition of the world against Jesus and his people. We too will suffer as Jesus did. The scriptures tell us again and again. And when we do, when we suffer, when we are in grief, it will feel and look like the world is winning. Can you imagine 
how their flesh could have caused them to say, all that we thought we were working for here is done. Look, the master's being slaughtered. It's over. If not by faith, pack your bags. It will look in our suffering too, in our grief, in our hardship, like the world is winning. We will see them celebrating. It, your flesh will even go so far at times to want to tap out, say, I'm just going to join them. That looks way easier. Let, let me just stop fighting against it. Let me just dive back into the cesspool. I'm just going to live for my flesh. I'm going to give in to what I want to do. Stop this hard road of honoring the Lord and being persecuted for his name. Our flesh loves the path of least resistance. So Jesus is undergirding them with truth. He's telling them, following me means sorrow, it means suffering. So I say to us, church, let's not be unaware. Don't be naive. Don't be guilty of ignoring the reality that the Christian life in this world is hard. The world is not going to work right for us. You've got to know this. Because our flesh really wants it to. We really want our kids to be safe. We really want a fair chance to succeed in this world. But your kids will not be safe, and the world's not going to give you a fair chance. They will persecute you. They will lie about you. They will come after you. That's not me trying to be prophetic and say, no, that's what the Scriptures are teaching us. Again, that's what the Lord's undergirding. That's what the New Testament early church shows us again and again. This is the reality. The authorities of that day are going to get away with lying about Jesus. They're going to successfully have the most innocent person to ever live condemned to death. Not by some private trial. Not with some take him into the woods and kill him and bury him and no one ever knew it happened. Publicly, they're going to get crowds to turn on him. They're going to get the governor of the state to give him over to torture and death. He's going to be publicly slaughtered. That's how bad the system is going to turn against him. So we must know the system's not working for us. The scriptures are clear it's working against us. When, when it does, we don't come undone like, God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm serving you. And, and look, none of this is going our way. The court system, the authorities, the my boss, whatever is coming at you, we need not be surprised at the reality of that opposition. Instead, we see that God is over it all. Even in the demise of Christ, it was ultimately God's plan and will to carry out. In all these things, he's working for our good. Even in those things we don't understand and we don't get that are, that are working against maybe our personal plan or agenda. Even in the injustice of Jesus' death, see the justice that God's creating for the elect. For those whom he would graciously redeem. See the disciples early on in their ministry lose their lives, be beaten, be constantly arrested and thrown in jail for preaching the name of Jesus. So we need to stop it. We need to stop right now 
If you think your Christianity or your church attendance means a better life now or an easier life, it will not. That's not the teachings of the Lord Jesus or his word. It will not be fair. The the temporary playing field will not be leveled in our favor. But, But here's the thing, church. We don't do it for that. If that's your aim, then you're missing the point of the gospel. The gospel says we do it for God. We do it for his glory. We do it for his namesake. It's my privilege to be on his team fighting for him, even with that opposition, knowing that the temporary could be, will be, Miserable, hard, painful. We do it for his glory and the joy set before us. That's what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew joy was coming. Endless, unrelenting joy. He knew what that would mean for us, his people. We need to know that our sorrow will turn into joy. Look now at the rest of verse 20. You're going to be grieved. You're going to lament. You're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus is saying, you must remain steadfast and walk in the living hope that you are in me because your sorrow will turn into joy. This is the promise of God for us. This is what we must hang our hat on, church. We must walk by faith and not by sight. This is the truth that picks us up in the midst of despair when nothing's going right or according to plan, when things are crumbling, when our health is failing, when our loved ones are abandoning, when your boss is firing, when your kids are running. We hold fast in faith to the joy set before us, who we are in Jesus, not in our circumstances. Peter will say it so well later, building on this in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice. Who's the you here? The you in this context is the church. The elect exiles is how he refers to the church here. In this we rejoice. Peter's saying God's elect exiles are to have joy, to rejoice In what? He says, in this. Well, what did he just get done saying? Look at verse 4 and 5. 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is so important that our joy is based on these truths of who we are in Christ and who God is and what he has secured for us and not in our circumstances. Peter's clear we will experience 
various trials and suffering. Our exile will mean that we'll be grieved by various trials. You will suffer. But he's also saying that these various trials and suffering that the elect exiles go through is in the state of a living hope. Not a fleeting hope, not a dead hope, but a living hope that we have for joy. Look at chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as, as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Are we aware? We need not be unaware. We need not be naive. We need not get comfortable in routine. Do you realize at any moment, any Sunday service, persecution could come storming through these doors? We prayed about it this morning with with the team leading worship this morning. Lord, let us not be naive. Let us be aware of the fact that any moment of this service, great struggle, great opposition could come and face and come against us. Let us not be undone by that, but aware that the world is against us and aware that you are our God and you have us and you will endure and you will do your work. Just because we've had 426 services in a row without any interruption doesn't mean that just based on simple history that it will continue. That's not the way it would necessarily be. That we're not surprised at those trials. We're not surprised at one of our young ones dying early or, or someone who seems very able-bodied and healthy, all of a sudden their body's riddled with cancer or, or someone's arrested and, 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 and being lied about and, and, and persecuted. That we're aware that the world will deceive, will come against. And, and, and our joy's not in that stuff. It's in the Lord. That's why it endures that stuff. It presses through. Paul joins Peter in saying, often, 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 he's rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Colossians 1.27, I rejoice in my sufferings. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 5.41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings. This, this is either, you've got to get out, you can't be in the middle. This is crazy people talk. See that, it's crazy. These people are nuts. You don't rejoice in the midst of suffering. That's, that's nut job stuff. Or there's something to this that is game-changing. That my joy is not linked to my circumstances. That my joy is found in something that is enduring and faithful and bigger than me or, or this temporary thing I'm in. And that is giving me a, an endurance to continue and to be joyful even in the midst of that. Bore by the gospel is declared, testified of, yes, 
So we're not surprised. As if something strange were happening to us. But there will be a foundation of joy in Christ, which equals even thanksgiving and praise, even in the midst of it. This is how Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You can try to accomplish a life that's just without sorrow, but the moment that something fails, what do you have? Or you can come to know the Lord Jesus and walk in faith and trust in Him and cling to Him. Even in the midst of sorrow, you are filled with joy. I want the latter. And I plead with you not to dismiss this truth today. Because some, I think, we can get caught up in really missing the fullness of what it means to be in Christ. We can't just try to add Him to our lives. We we must know this rightly and stand fast and, and make it a part of our prayers and our journey because hard things are either happening or are right around the corner. Painful stuff. Death of a loved one. Financial stress. Maybe wrestling with addictive habits. Maybe flesh-driven motivations of a loved one that's ripping apart marriage or family. Broken relationships with the other party is content to do nothing to reconcile. Your health is really failing you. I don't have to show you more than five minutes of the nightly news for us to see the reality of the suffering and struggle in this world. Or read for you the daily ailments of our local hospital patients. Give you a pastoral's insight into the reality of what families are really going through. And the reality for us here in America and in Bakersfield is we have it pretty good. But that doesn't mean that these things are not real and painful and hard. But notice that Peter says, though for now for a little while, meaning reminding us that it's temporary. Believers can rejoice in suffering in our exile because we have a living hope, meaning it's not going to last forever. The exile will come to an end. The suffering will come to an end. It's, it's brief in comparison with eternity. Again, are you walking by faith or by sight? Because if you're walking by sight, you will be undone when it gets flipped on its head. But if you're walking by faith, you'll see through it. You, you, you'll, you'll have a hope in a God who's eternal, in, in, in His promises for you for the eternal, not just for the temporary. And this is where... Paul says boldly in Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And also notice, it says, Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, if necessary means if God decides it necessary. The sovereign God who's over all things. According to 1 Peter 4.19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It is good news because that means our suffering or various trials are not outside of God's sovereign hand. Meaning he hasn't forgotten you. 
He's not busy with something else and he'll try to get back to you. No, he's, he's working in and through it all for his purposes, for his glory. Can you imagine how undone the disciples are watching the master be torn to shred if not that faith, if not that trust in a sovereign God, you're just done. You're done. Pack it up. I'm done. But, but they didn't. Praise God. It means, it means as we go through struggle and, and, and adversity, we, we trust that God's at work. God is sovereign. He's got this. He's using it all for our good, for His glory. And if God deems it necessary, then it's necessary. Again, you might not think it's necessary. Probably really, really hate it. Think there's really, really another better way to go. But again, we don't depend on our own understanding. We trust in Him. So when Jesus says in John 16, 20, you will weep and lament and you will be sorrowful, the trials the disciples and the church will face, they will grieve us. So notice that too, because what I want you to be clear to understand, this is not a sermon that says, hey church, put on the happy face, never cry, don't ever show your wounds, your heart. No, no. Jesus is saying here, you will weep and lament and be sorrowful. Have you ever felt like being around the church? You, you can't say ouch. You have to be strong, not show any wear or tear. And that's just not the case. Christians hurt. They say ouch. Exiles mourn. They slow down. We need each other. We need each other to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We need each other to be in the ashes with us and mourn with us, and that's good. Don't hide it. Let your brothers and sisters come around you. I had a brother tell me years ago, Pastor, don't, don't keep your struggles from, from me. Don't remove from me the blessing that it is to, to come alongside you. And that is what it is. It is a blessing to share that, to share that hardship and that hurt and that fight against sin. I know it's vulnerable to confess, I'm stuck in this sin. It's destroying me. And the moment you say that out loud to a trusted brother or sister who can help you walk through it is, is a great moment. When I get the privilege of being shared that, and I know I speak for the other leaders here, when, when you share that with us, our first response is not, oh, wow, man, you're a bad person. I to stand a little farther away from you. Like, I don't know. I know that's what you, you worry about it being. No, it's actually the opposite. It's a lean in because it's a praise God that it's coming out. That That's a trajectory of confession or repentance by which we can press into the gospel and press into the cross in a way where that growth from that can happen. It's a praise God moment. But let me also say this, that if you're the one in the ashes or in the trench of just despair or hardship or you just really broke down, don't push off or chastise a brother or sister who's trying to point you back to Christ in the midst of that. They're there with you in the ashes. They're mourning with you. But what you don't get to do is say, let me just be sad. And you don't get to bring up the joy that it is to be in the Lord because that's not, that's to love you to say those things. 
to be reoriented to the gospel, to remind you who you are in Christ. So we need to make sure our flesh doesn't just take over those moments. So is it good and okay to, to say ouch and to be in hardship? Absolutely. But we look to Christ. We, we look to recenter ourselves back on the hope we have on him, on the joy that it is to be his. And we do that together. We do that in his word. We do that in prayer. Our struggle is not our end. It doesn't undo us. There is a hope, a living hope, in the midst of the trial that helps us press through and keep on. Carries us through the tears. Psalm 34, 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Hear this today. Neither Old Testament or New Testament promises that believers will escape affliction in this life, but God is sovereign to use that suffering for his eternal purposes to carry out his plan, and he will deliver us. Now look at the example that Jesus gives here in the context when he says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. To the disciples then, he uses a very potent example, although none of them relate to it, it's potent for all mankind. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that is a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. So this was the first and massive you who have, ladies who have given birth can say amen, reality of the consequence of sin and pain and suffering for a woman is child is pain and childbirth. Very real, very potent. You who know this pain are not slow to remind us who don't know how painful it is. And trust me, I believe it. I mean, look, Jesus is giving high credit to this as a, 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 a great example of what he's getting at. What, what an amazing truth Jesus gives here. And, and so don't miss it. To watch your wife, and I've been there, rightly screaming in pain as she pushes a little person out of her body, screaming, tears, sweating, blood, pain, and then all of a sudden, in the most amazing turn of events, Despite that the pain is still there, the body is still bleeding, the sweat is still running down her face, the room is totally transformed into joy. A new life has emerged. The work of God is on display in one of the most amazing ways. Now, as potent as that is, the disciples have no clue, I would argue, how much more potent what they're about to go through is. Consider with me, again, all of their life is fixed on following their leader, their master, Lord Jesus, God the Son in flesh. And they're going to watch him get arrested and taken away. They're going to watch him be lied about in trials. They're, they're going to watch him be beaten. They're going to watch him in public court. They're going to watch the governor give him over. They're going to watch his flesh torn from his body. They're going to watch him hung naked in front of masses of people who are celebrating him being slaughtered. They're going to watch him die. Can you imagine the joy 
in them to see him risen and standing before them. (laughs) That's so much even bigger than the example he's giving here. So when he says, you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. That's what he's pointing to. (laughs) And what's so cool is that's not just for them, but that's for us too. This is the joy we cling to right now in our suffering. The victory and the power and the promise of our Savior, our bloody champion, is coming again to bring an end to it all, to take us home. But you, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. This is what he's pointing to. It's not just to them, it's for us too. And see how personal it is. Do you see how personal Jesus gets? I will see you again. And you, your hearts will rejoice. We need to look forward with great anticipation and joy to his second coming. But it gets better. It gets better. Look at the next part of verse 22. And no one will take your joy from you. Not only will your sorrow turn into joy, but no one will be able to take it from us. I mean, don't miss that. Because that can be another huge factor of how our joy is robbed. And and Jesus is saying... It's secure in the power of God. If let me let me tell you what let me try to give you a taste for what that's getting after. If someone showed up to your house today, or 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 a box, a delivery showed up, and you open it, and inside is five million dollars worth of pure gold with your name on it. There's no doubt it's it's yours. I can almost but guarantee you are not enjoying the hours to follow. Why? Because you are stressed about the fact that there's $5 million worth of gold in the middle of your living room. Right? Am I not? Do you see, do you see where it just went? Now you're with me. I mean, you're thinking, who do I trust? Who do I call? Who knows it's here? Who's outside? Who's watching us? Are we all about to die? Where would I go bury this and hide it 20 feet under the ground in some random place? We're stressed. Why? Because I've been blessed with this amazing gift, this thing that's great, and now i got to figure out how to keep it safe so I don't lose it, so it's not taken from me. So Jesus is blessing them. No one's going to take your joy from you. And it's not up to you to figure that out. Why? Because it's established and it's held by God. It's not happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is dependent on the moment. It comes and it goes. Joy is lasting because joy is only really found in God. It's held by His power. 
Back to the, the words we read from Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's audience, the elect exiles, God's chosen people, been saved, sent out on mission to make disciples of all nations. And Peter's saying, your exile is going to be hard, and yet Christ has saved you to a living hope and a salvation that is kept, a treasure, an inheritance that is kept by the power of God. Through faith. And so when you're in the midst of that storm, or when life is falling apart, or it's coming at us, or we're being unjustly persecuted, we don't get swallowed up in what we see. We have faith in the promises of God, in who we are in Christ, that gives us a trajectory, a cling to that joy that is before us, in the midst of that hardship. Church, our inheritance is imperishable, meaning it will not end, it will not run out, it will not go bad. Yes, please. Our inheritance is undefiled, it's holy, it's pure. Our inheritance cannot lose its luster or value or beauty over time. Our inheritance is secure, This is what Jesus is saying when he says to them, no one will take your joy from you. I've got it. It's secure in God. Who's going to break in and get your joy, get your salvation out of the grip of God? Not even Satan. No one. The highest power is God. He's the one who secures our eternity. He is able because he's God. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Church, We need to not see our security for eternity as divine walls of protection that surround a heavenly city. It is so much bigger than that. It is the active and always present power of God by whom nothing can break in or undo. This is what we heard Jesus speak about clearly in chapter 10 and in chapter 6. I'll remind you quickly, John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Amen? God will not lose any that he saved. Jesus makes it clear in John 6, 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he gives me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. 
So we do not make a mistake in our election, do not make a mistake at the cross, do not make a mistake in our new birth, and he does not make a mistake in our enduring to the end. No one can take away our greatest joy that we have in Christ and the treasure that he has given us, which is him, which is our adoption, which is life in the family of God forever. See that focus on him as Jesus says next in verse 23 and 24, John 16, 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We've already covered it, but I'll remind you that asking for something in Jesus' name is our way of saying, Lord, I want you to do your work and I want your will to be done. It's not what prosperity gospel teachers have turned it into, which is that speaking the name of Jesus over something is some kind of like magical incantation that gets you what you're asking for. To ask in Jesus' name is our way of joining God in what he's going to do. It's, it's saying, Lord, you do your work to fulfill your will. My joy is I, I get to be part of that. And that's why he'll always answer that prayer, by the way. We get to participate in the work of his name for his glory and for our joy. You'll see me write in letters or, or speak this phrase often that whatever we're talking about, it's for his glory, it's for others' good, and it's for our joy. Because it's true. Whatever it is we're talking about, we've we got to do that for his glory, not for our own. It's ultimately for, for the good of others, for the way the gospel would transform their life and give them the greatest gift that, that, that there is. And, and it's for my joy. It's the joy that I have in Christ that, that God is, has given me and, and, and blessed me with. It's, it's a joy to, to do this, to, to, to serve him, to even suffer for him. And then our joy is, is in God. Jesus says that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full and overflowing in Christ. Not joy built on fleeting circumstances, but in God, who is eternal and perfect and satisfying. You will not be full consistently if your joy or your, or your happiness is trying to be grounded in circumstantial or temporary things because they will break, they will abandon you, they will die, they will... You won't be full. Only in God who is eternal, perfect, holy... As the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Again, a prosperity gospel teacher will say, delight yourself in the Lord and you can have that Ferrari you've always wanted. And I just plead back with him to say, hey dummy, read the scripture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Where are the desires of my heart? In the Lord. delighted in him he is my delight it's a beautiful way of saying see the fleeting nature of the temporary 
Stop building your house on the sand. Build it on the rock. Delight yourself in the only thing that will last. The only thing will overflow in your life consistently. The psalmist will say in Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He's the prize. Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. It's all for naught. It's all way less meaningful happiness next to who he is. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the prize, the one worthy of our trust and our praise. So I ask you just truly, honestly, is he your treasure? Is he your highest aim? Is your joy in him? Young parent, do business, honest business with, is your joy and your treasure ultimately in your child? Young entrepreneur, is it in the fact that your company actually looks like it's going to go, it's going to happen, we're going to make it? Engaged couple, is your joy, is your hope, is your, is your happiness in your fiancé? Can't be, can't be. Must be in the Lord. He must be your treasure. He's the only one that can't be broken, lost, abandon you in sin. Go away. He's the only one able to fill our cup. Psalm 43, 4 is God, your exceeding joy. Job 22, 25 is the Almighty Himself, your treasure, your precious silver. Is the Lord your overflowing joy? David got this. He wrote in the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He he understood the work of the Lord in his life. He understood the opposition he would face. He understood, although he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with him. Although you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. There's a goodness and mercy that David gets in the Lord despite the fact that he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, despite the fact that his enemies are present. And where is his eyes? Where is his hope? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus says at the end of our text today that your joy may be full. Is it full? Is it overflowing? Brimmed out? I mean full. I don't mean Starbucks coffee full. 
do you want room for cream? Heck no, I don't want room for cream. You're only going to pour three quarters of a cup and give me five inches for cream. Fill it up. And then it still has an inch of room at the top. I'm that guy. I'm constantly spilling my coffee. I want it full. Try carrying a full, truly full cup around through your day without spilling it. You can't. You will spill it. And I think that's the point. That we overflow. That that gospel, that joy in Christ, despite our circumstances, despite walking in the valley of shadow of death, despite presence of my enemies, my cup's full, it's overflowing. The joy of the Lord's overflowing. You're... You're either crazy or tell me what this is. What's the gospel? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me share Jesus with you. This is a joy we have only in Christ. A joy that endures and carries us through the valley of the shadow of death. A joy that we will be forever in God's kingdom. Better than that with God. Church, we have much to rejoice in today, do we not? Let's praise him in prayer and in song. Father God, we, we joyfully come to you this morning just, just thankful, thankful for Jesus' words here to the disciples. Thankful for being honest to say that it will be hard, there will be suffering, there will be persecution, you will grieve, you will mourn, but it, your sorrow will turn into joy. You did that for us. You bought that freedom. You took on the wrath we deserve so that we could be set free, so that we could be secure in your kingdom, secure in the inheritance you've prepared for us, secure and adopted in your family forever to know you, love you, worship you, rejoice in you. Our joy would be in you, Lord. So in all these ways, I just pray that you're blessing my brothers and sisters, you're blessing this room today, those who are listening from afar, with just clarity. Uh, the, the, the living hope that endures us through, the, the joy of the Lord that overflows even in the midst of great hardship, that we, we would be clinging to you. We would be trusting in you. We would be waiting on you. We would be walking by faith and not by sight. That just like when that baby is born, that room's transformed. Even though the circumstances are still very real, the pain, the blood, the, all of it is real. It's transformed. Lord, same thing with, with your coming, Lord. They were... The, the joy on those guys' face must have been overwhelmed. And we look forward to that, your second coming. And we look forward to it with great anticipation. Let us be purposeful with our days and our testimony, our words, and our work. In the coming hours and days, the Lord wills, will return. But hear us now as we worship you and rejoice in these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the King.